This is Selena. This is Carol. Welcome, everyone. This is episode number nine, and this podcast is uh, the Peace Corps Tales. So, first, a little disclaimer the podcast is not affiliated with the U.S. Peace Corps or the U.S. government. All thoughts, opinions, and recollections are for informational purposes only and to allow listeners a chance to hear Peace Corps Tales from returned Peace Corps volunteers. So today we have Jeffrey. So welcome, Jeffrey. Can you tell us a little about your your background? Dumalong, Lebito Laka K Jeff Walsh K Sebelitse Peace Corps Ka 2016 Ho 2018 Honlo Ka Mosuehe La Mapotapi K Ho Bula Vena Ulela Peace Corps podcast, Kiale Boha Peace Corps Tales. Okay, so and and my and I just hope my Setswana teacher didn't hear that either. So because <laughs> there would there would be a lot of corrections there. Yes, uh, Setswana is one of uh, eleven national languages in South Africa. So that's that was the language where I was at. But okay, I'll, I'll introduce myself for you. Uh, my name is uh, Jeffrey Walsh, and my country of service was South Africa. Uh, I served from 2016 to 2018, so fairly recently. The village I served in was in the northwest province, uh, Mapotsile. It's a township of about, I'm going to guess, about 200 people. And then I was an education volunteer. I served in the education sector. Well, thank you so much for that. So first off, because you're a little unique, um, you didn't just do Peace Corps. Based off the information that you sent us through emails, it said that you did six different services throughout your lifetime from 1990 until present. And so I kind of just wanted to ask as your first question, why did you choose to do a life of service rather than just one? Uh, That's a good question. So I have a uh, keen desire to help others. So at a fairly young age, I started volunteering. So while I was in uh, college, I volunteered at a place called CRIS, C-R-I-S, Chicago Radio Information Services. And we would broadcast the Chicago Tribune on a closed circuit radio shut-ins in local hospitals. Um, recently, I drove for the American Red Cross. Uh, I seem to also have a love affair of Uncle Sam, so I've sworn in a number of times. <laughs> An arm, old army photo. So I'm in my okay. dress blues. So that was another form of service. I was an army medic. So I drove an ambulance. I also was a pharmacy tech. I worked inside uh, the hospital and sometimes in the field. Yeah, I like to like to serve, like to help, I guess you could say. <laughs> yeah, I bet. It seems so interesting to just go through so many different kinds of swearing in. But first, for this interview, we do want to focus more on your Peace Corps service. So I do want to know more specifically, why did you decide to join Peace Corps? Like I said, a big desire to help people. When my opportunity to serve Peace Corps came up in 2016, uh, I was given a choice of three countries, uh, Costa Rica, China and South Africa. So South Africa was a dream come true for me because of my childhood idols include uh, Nelson Mandela and Desmond Tutu. Uh, it sounds corny uh, to try to help save the world, but, you know, I'm an idealist and I hope I did my little part to do that. 
Nice. Thank you for that. At least it was pretty recent that you did your Peace Corps service. So what was one item that you can recall just being so thankful that you actually packed before leaving for your country? Well, that's a solar lamp. So being in a uh, township, there were uh, occasional power outages. So this would come in handy. And then when I was at night, you know, going out to the uh, latrine or out in the backyard or something, I'd have my little lamp. You know, so I, so I wouldn't trip over anything. Yeah, this is probably my favorite item, I guess. What kind of lamp is that, though? I don't think I've seen that. Like, I've heard Illuminates, which I had during my service, or even the, like, crank-up, like, flashlight. But I don't think I've seen those kinds. So where did you get that? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I, I have two of them. One I, I, I went to Walmart to get with my father before a service started. This one, this one was actually uh, in-country. Yeah, I bought this. Uh, I think it's at the uh, it's called the Brooklyn Mall, which is in Pretoria. So this was a South African item. My other uh, solar lamp was uh, I bought in the U.S. at Walmart. <laughs> Believe it or not, it gets cold in South Africa. It doesn't get bone chilling cold like uh, uh, Montana or Alaska here, but it gets cold enough. And the difference in temperature between day and night, you you really do need warmer clothing. Sometimes you, you might wish to wear a uh, winter coat, you know, which is you just wouldn't expect that in South Africa. Yeah, that's true. You wouldn't. Does it ever get like snow or is it just like really cold? Near me in my province, in the northwest province, it was semi-arid. We were near the Kalahari Desert. So even at my little school, there was uh, some sand mixed with grass sometimes in some of the areas of the uh, school grounds. Yeah, Selena and I had the pleasure to go to Johannesburg after we finished service. And I personally didn't expect to be so cold. We were frozen the two nights that we stayed there. I only had like a very light sweater and I think I had like some thick socks and that's all I had. And I remember like we went out for dinner and I was just like freezing to death because obviously we had just come from Madagascar, which was really, really hot at the time. And we get to South Africa and it was so cold, like probably wasn't really that cold, but just like the difference in degrees to me. I was like, oh, my God, I cannot deal with this right now. Were you both in the same cohort then? Yes, we served together. Yeah. My nickname for our cohort, we have 37 in our cohort. I always called it the California cohort because <laughs> one out of three was from California. They, they live there. They're from there. There was some tie in to California. I worked in California. I never lived in California. So cohort had a distinct California flavor to it, I guess you'd say, you know. Oh, now that you bring up names of cohorts. Oh, my God. We never talked about this, Carol. But our cohort, we what was what was the name that our Zookies gave us? Uh, the Madonnas, I think it was. Yeah, the Madonnas, because like we wanted things a certain way. But then we gave ourselves the name of Bitch Asafati, which means like, bitch, please. Um, and they're like, that's why you're Madonnas, because you guys just changed the name we gave you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we wanted things our way or the highway, I guess. So our cohort was SA-34, so it was the 34th cohort uh, to come to South Africa. So Nelson Mandela met Bill Clinton back in 97, and they forged an agreement, and then Peace Corps volunteers started coming to South Africa shortly after apartheid. So it was real nice. And the name I was given during my time in South Africa, my name is Toboho, which means thankful in Setswana. What was real special about that, I like the name, 
But that was to me like the moment I was accepted in my village. See, once once the community got together and came up with a formal name, I was very proud of it. They even have nicknames for Taboho. So they call you T-Man or Tebza and some other things. So I knew things were going to be good after that. So your community actually gave you that nickname, not like Peace Corps. No, no, it's definitely the community. I'd been in the village a couple months, maybe longer. And then they called a meeting and... Um, you, became, you became Tebogo? Well, the G is H, sort of like Spanish. So, oh, yeah. So it's Taboho, yeah. yes. Wow, you you do have a life of service. That's very impressive and very admirable. Oh, thank um, you. Before getting into how life was in your village, can you give us like maybe a memory of or a highlight from your pre-service training? Well, you mentioned Johannesburg. So we, I don't know if when you were in Johannesburg, did you go to the Apartheid Museum? We went yes. there. It was very moving, very eye-opening, uh, maybe very sad that they had to go through all that. I thought that was a necessary thing uh, for, for all, all the Peace Corps volunteers serving out in South Africa to go to the Apartheid Museum. So to me, that was a highlight. There was also a panel that was invited to we, – we train in Pumalunga at a agricultural college. And the uh, panel was – they all had different backgrounds, and they talked about apartheid. So that was a highlight for me. Wow. Yeah, I remember going to the museum, and you do come out uh, with a different view of apartheid, because obviously you probably hear that just from te textbooks, but there is nothing like actually being there. To me personally, it was extremely powerful. I I think we ran out of time, because we got there a little bit late during the day, I feel, and you definitely need to be there for a full entire day to actually be able to absorb all the information and everything that is in display at the museum. So that was definitely one of the best visits that I had during our trip after after service. So, yeah. Pre-service training, I think, for every country is a little over two months. Am I right? Yeah. yeah. Three months. Yeah. Maybe that varies. Maybe that varies. Yeah, it's usually two and a half months to three months. Going along with the pre-service training, can you give us, like, what are the living conditions as a trainee in South Africa. One thing that to me separates volunteering for, for other groups is the Peace Corps is a total immersion process. So you're placed with a South African family, as, in, as I was and everyone else was. During the day, you're learning in the classroom, but the learning never ends because you're placed with a South African family. That's quite an advantage. And I think it speeds up uh, the process of cross-cultural learning when you're actually considered part of a, a family unit. So my uh, house mom was a school teacher. And one, one day she says, we're going to wash the clothes. So there I am. I've, you know, I've never washed clothes in a, in a wash tub. And, you know, I had my scrubbing board and she's making me scrub my white shirts a little whiter. And I said, well, <laughs> and I said, well, why are we doing that? Oh, well, you're going to wear this to church today. I'm like, oh, really? <laughs> okay, you know. So you try, whatever the customs are, you try to go along with it. And so, you know, right away, living with a family, you obviously you eat the uh, South African food right away, and you, 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 you can ask questions all day long because you're learning the language, in my case, Setswana, during the day, and then you're staying with the family at night. So during pre-service training, where you're always with your host family, or is there like a training facility 
you will eventually move to, because that's our case. We did have host families, and then towards the end of PST, we just moved back to the training facility. So it was it like that for you, or you just the entire time were with a host family? We were all with host families, but they were pretty st spread out. Some people had to take a, a bus maybe 30 minutes or 40 minutes away. Oh. And I was lucky. I was fairly close. So it just depended on the person. So, you know, the... The host families are vetted in advance. You know, the, the Peace Corps okay. checks out to see if there's a match between the potential family and the potential volunteer. So maybe that's why some of the uh, host families were farther out. So, yeah, the, the house I lived in was, was nice, and the uh, training facility was an old agricultural college. So we used those classrooms, so that was fairly nice, too. How big was your family, your host family? Okay, so the, the mother was a school teacher. She had an older son, and he would come. He worked in Johannesburg, so he would come back on the weekends. He was a business person. And what was nice, the uh, other son was a special needs child. I was able to, uh, or we were able to communicate back and forth, and he was a special needs kid. So that was very nice uh, uh, being with their family like that. Yeah, that's true. So you've sworn in now. So how was that transition from becoming a trainee to actually going to your site and becoming a volunteer? You know, even if you're you're an American moving city to city or going from place to place, country to country is more dramatic. My family, my permanent family in, in the village had never had a Peace Corps volunteer in the past. I wasn't sure what to expect, but they were very welcoming to me. And so was the whole community. So pretty smooth transition, I'd say considering everything. Was it like once you arrived at your site, did you still live with a host family or was it that you got your own house and you're left on your own? No, nope. Peace Corps takes all of that. So just like how you were vetted to be with a family during Peace Corps uh, pre-service training, they also vetted the family that you went to in the village. So it does make for a fairly smooth transition, at least, you know, to begin with. So There was a time in South Africa people lived in the house with the family, but I'm not sure why that changed. But so we had a separate like facility in the back. That's where I lived. Oh, okay. And was there a time where like you guys can move out of that family's facilities like after a certain amount of months? Or was it you always just live with this family throughout your whole service? We live with the family our whole whole service. So For me, it was also very convenient because I was uh, very close to the school. Um, you know, it was literally 20 feet away. So it was right across the easement, right across a grassy area, and I could go right to school. So It's always nice when your job's right outside your door, which is my case. Yeah, so I worked at a hospital for my service or like the health center, but I lived in it. So that was my workplace and also where I lived. So <laughs> it was interesting. Uh, you, yeah, you mentioned health. So I had a health background and I tried to put, use that to my advantage. So when I was at the school, there was a, a medical officer. One of the teachers was assigned a medical officer. So I got to help out in that way. So I would, you know, give CPR or uh, splint a leg. In South Africa, there's a push for the PEPFAR program, which has to do with HIV AIDS. So I would go to the radio station and give public service announcements about HIV AIDS once a month. 
I tried to use my uh, a little bit of my medical background as best I could. Oh, I'm surprised I actually let you do that because I know for us, if we were like health volunteers, and even if you were a nurse, because we had a few nurses or one nurse in our cohort, she was advised that it wasn't her job to like help them in the medical facility with her background, but just do what we were there to do, which was like train about medical, like health, nutrition, wash, which is like water sanitation and hygiene. And so they weren't supposed to like step over those bounds. So was this something that you kind of just did on your own and didn't tell Peace Corps or was it just that like Peace Corps didn't like mind where you were? I didn't know I was doing anything wrong, honestly. And most of the health service, if you want to call it what I was doing, was accompanying kids over to the local clinic. Occasionally I'd help out, you know, with other things, uh, medical. So just an extra uh, hand uh, to, to help out. Okay, that makes sense. Okay, so now think about your whole service. Can you find three highlights that you want to talk to us about? I got lucky. I, I wrote a letter to Desmond Tutu, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, a personal letter. And there's a Desmond Tutu Foundation. One day in 2017, November 1st, 2017, Two trucks arrived and they brought 500 the Desmond Tutu laptop desk. They have an initiative by year 2025. They want to distribute 20 million of these desks throughout the whole continent of Africa. So our, our little school got 500 of these for grades one through six. And I was really lucky because I had no uh, grant writing experience prior to this. Each desk has lessons on them. So if kids were daydreamers, it was colorful enough to keep their attention. That was one thing that was a, a highlight, I guess you'd say. Big deal for the school. It was covered on the little local radio and their school district knew about it. And so these desks, did the kids get to take them home or was it left at the schools? The foundation, the Desmond Tutu Foundation, encouraged the kids to bring them home, but there was pushback from the uh, school administration. They wanted to collect them after each class. They were afraid that the uh, desks would get marked up, you know, if they brought them home. Oh, were they made out of cardboard? Like, I can't really tell through the video, but what, what material are these desks made out of? It's a, it's a heavy plastic. Oh, okay. So what other highlights do you got for us? I hosted a Nelson Mandela Day. And if I could put this in perspective, I'm a uh, older uh, white male, American male, hosting a Nelson Mandela Day in South Africa. So that was very special for me one of my childhood idols. So Nelson Mandela Day is every year it's on July 18th, the anniversary of his birthday. For me to hold something like that at the school was a big deal. I wrote up an article about it and about the Nelson Mandela Day, and we put it in the Peace Corps magazine. There was the keynote speaker that day from my village. He knew Nelson Mandela. He was a freedom fighter himself. So that was really special, too. So I was able to get a picture of him and Nelson Mandela. It's a nice day. We had uh, 10 stations set up for the kids, and they went around and answered questions at each station about Nelson Mandela. So it was a nice day. The third highlight was uh, I was able to start a little library. Again, I'd never written out a grant before. I wasn't expecting to get accepted for a grant, so I looked around the school and I go, wow, there's a lot of excess books, and they're not just textbooks, 500 books. I go, that, that could be the start of a library. After I obtained the 500 books from around the school, Browns, and I went to my shopping towns, I had two shopping towns, 
Taung and Hartsvater. And we got books from there on a regular basis. I would stop there every two or three weeks. The Peace Corps has nonprofits that donate books regularly. So one was out of Cape Town, uh, some are out of America, and I was able to get books that way also. So I ended up with about 2,000 books. Maybe once or twice a week, I would roll out rolling bookshelves, and I would change out the books. And by the time my service was over, I had little librarians checking out the books. So it was kind of fun. Was it actually able to work well? Because I know at my site... Uh, my site mate had created a library as well with like books. And then whenever we would try to show them to the kids or something, it would just be chaos where it just became we're like, you're trying to make sure that the kids aren't going to go and destroy everything. You're trying to give them some structure, but you want them to learn. And it was just kind of everywhere. So like, how did you get these little librarians to like, go and actually check out books and like be more structured, I guess? So I started out that way, too. And I would roll them out in the open in the assembly area. And I'm like, Oh, I see. We got a little mob scene here. Kids coming from everywhere. So what I did, I went to the teacher's lounge. I put the books in there and then they had to get past (laughs) me and the teachers like one at a time. So I'd let them in one at a time. You pick your book, a kid would sign it out and then it would be like next. So that's how we solved that. Cause yeah, I originally started out like that. I'm like, oh, no, this is not. Yeah, I bet. This is not going to (laughs) work. Yeah, because kids are like a little crazy once they see something. They're just like, it's new. It's new. It's different. And like they may not have had it all the time before. And so, yeah, they're just like, ah. (laughs) So I am interested to see what this moment would be. So it sounds like you're a lot with your kids and children and everything. But did you ever have like a WTF moment where it's something where you're just like, oh, my God, I can't believe that just happened. Or it's just so bizarre that, you know, it probably wouldn't necessarily happen in the States. Well, it was a little shocking for me is using my little uh, solar light at night and maybe having to kill a scorpion or a black widow and then kids calling up Taboho, Taboho, come here, kill the scorpion, you know. Yeah, there was there was little events, I think, almost daily like that. So, <laughs> uh, But you had scorpions, which sounds awful. I know we had, what, were they the centipedes that could like sting you and then it was extremely painful? Like those were our like centipedes in a sense where wherever we saw them, <laughs> people had some horror stories with them, but they were hilarious. <laughs> so I have a question following up about your host family. Did they assign a piece of land to grow vegetables for the kids at the school or they just whatever they gather from their harvest, they decided to kind of donate to the school or how did that work? Yeah, this is a picture of my house mom and house dad. So they were really nice. They were farmers. So anytime they were growing something, uh, let's say, for instance, spinach. So they would give me to boho spinach first and then they take a wheelbarrow and then wheel the rest of it to the school, to the kids, so they could eat it at lunchtime. So it's fantastic. So they're really nice people. That's so kind. Wow. And that was just initiated by the, the, the community itself. That sounds like a dream come true when you go to those little villages and you're trying to have kids to eat more healthy, you know? That sounds like the perfect project for any fiscal volunteer that is, you know, focused on agriculture or nutrition. That's very amazing. You know, I didn't ask in detail, but all I know is there. Uh, that was their background, an agricultural background, and it led to all kinds of things. So there was an actual garden that they grew vegetables on the, the plot of land they lived, and I lived too. 
Okay, down the street, my house mom volunteered at another place, and then she got vegetables from there. And then by the time I left, there was a greenhouse that was actually on the school grounds. And then that gardener also grew vegetables. So I think they were trying to have the kids eat healthy from a variety of different sources. So at lunchtime, you know, not only would I have the uh, library books out there, it's like you can see this kid playing chess. So this particular week, lunchtime activities with teacher Taboho. So one day was gymming, which is the term for physical exercise in South Africa, singing. So I would uh, fill out sl uh, flip charts with different American songs and they would sing them. You know. GRS is grassroots soccer. Did you guys do that in the... Uh uh, we learned about it, but we didn't really do it where we were. No. I am familiar with the program and I used it a couple of times. I, I know the basics, uh, but within, within my community and the kids that I was working with, it didn't, it's not that it didn't work. I decided to change it a little bit to be more adapted to the things that I was working on because HIV, uh, is not a, such a huge issue as it is in South Africa or mainland Africa. Uh, our main issue is like malaria, at least in my on my site. So we do have URS, but it's geared in a different sort of way, I guess you can say. Okay. Yeah, maybe you could have just uh, changed it to risky behaviors. I did that too. So, for instance, you know, when you're playing football or you're playing soccer, uh, you dribble the ball. So I would set up obstacles maybe 10 feet apart, and each obstacle was labeled a risky behavior like smoking, uh, not using a condom, drinking, drugs, etc. So yeah, I, I also, so the kids would dribble the ball and if they hit one of the uh, obstacles, then we stopped for five or 10 minutes to talk about that particular behavior. So that was one of the uh, grassroots nice. soccer uh, activities. You've covered some of your highlights. We cover a little bit of the WTF moments. Can you think of like one oh my god moment, something that was truly unique to your service? Oh my god, I can't believe I feel such privilege of being a volunteer. Oh well, to have to have a name is quite an honor, you know. And Taboho means thankful. And and the interesting is there were two Taboho volunteers in my cluster. Did you did you have clusters? Do you know what that is? No, what do you mean by cluster? So we had this system, or at least the Peace Corps South Africa, that volunteers were placed anywhere from five or ten people together. So I had four other people in neighboring villages near me. And so the one day I went up to the other volunteer, she's in the neighboring village, said, did you get a South African name? And she got the same one as me. So we were sort of like brother, sister, you know, which was kind of neat. So we were both Taboho. Boy Taboho, girl Taboho. So I thought that was a nice thing. When you were giving your uh, South African name, Taboho, was it like some kind of ceremony or were you, you were just told, oh, from now on you are Taboho? <laughs> um, there were people from the community. There's, there's a group of tribal elders. There were the, the local staff, the cooks, the janitors, all the, uh, all the teachers, uh, the principal, the vice principal. All kinds of people in the community, um, a few of the parents, and, you know, that's when I got my name. So that was really nice. So it is a big deal that you were named within that South African name. It's just not something that just happened 
that came to your door and say, hey, from now on, you are Tebojo. There was actually, <laughs> you know, <laughs> there was there is actually a very strong meaning be- behind that. I had wondered, you know, I mean, I hadn't formally asked other volunteers, hey, what your name is and how did you get your name and, and such. But I just assume it. everyone else, got, you know, had the same process, but maybe not. Yeah, that's very interesting. My name was the same. It just it was pronounced differently. And my family made fun of it, of how they call me. Because it's Carol. So there is like five ways to say my name. It's Carol in English. And then Carol in Spanish. And then Caroli or Carola in Malagasy. But there was really never, you know, there were we weren't given any like Malagasy names per se. Yeah, the only time we were given a Malagasy name was during pre-service training, remember? And the staff gave us each a name. Like I was a uh, Kiptana which means star. I have no idea what mine was. I, I don't remember. It's a bag, yes. <laughs> so it says, on the bag, it says Speco long grain rice, 10 kilograms. So I saved this as a uh, souvenir. What, it, what this was used for, well, originally it was for rice, but some kids didn't have backpacks. So this is how they carried their books to school. So that was... Uh, that was very interesting to me, you know. So did all rice come in these huge bags or was it like special rice that came in those kind of bags? Okay. So they had this giant bags of rice and there was another uh, giant bag of something called pop. And that is a, a food staple in South Africa. And pop is um, similar to mashed potatoes, but it's corn based. So it's made out of maize. So... They would, when these bags were empty, the kids would use them as backpacks for school. That's how that happened. So there were 10 oh. kilogram bags, 20 kilogram bags. They tend to um, come in large quantities or large bags like that. It's so interesting that you're talking about how they buy rice there because in Madagascar, rice is life. So people there eat rice three times a day. But they ne- they can never buy huge amounts, so they only buy buy small amounts. We call it kapoka, which is like a can size, and you buy like two, three, four, five, depending on the amount that you need. But you could never see a person with a ten kilo bag of rice in any given time, unless you were the seller. Then you have a goodie bag selling the rice. But yeah, that kind of bags that was not a thing in Madagascar. I'm looking at my map of the continent in Africa. I see Madagascar is pretty close, right? You have a body of water separating you. Did you take a, would you Would you be able to take a ferry from Madagascar to South Africa or did you have to fly or how would you do that? Yeah, you fly from Antananarivo, which is the capital. And then I think there is a straight flights to Johannesburg and it's about three hours, I believe it is. I don't think there is ferries, but there is definitely commercial ships that come from mainland Africa to the ports in Madagascar. So you didn't try to use a canoe or a motorboat or something? No, No, we went the old-fashioned way on a nice plane to South Africa. Um, Going back about the rice and talking about, let's just talk about food now. What is your favorite South African dish? I don't know what the percentage of population, but there's a lot of different languages, so you know there's a lot of different groups in South Africa. One group is uh, Indians, people from the country of India. So I fell in love with a food called uh, bunny chow, 
and I used to get it every week. And what it is, it's uh, either a, a, a version of chicken curry or beef curry, and it's in a loaf of hollowed-out bread, believe it or not. And they put some spices in there. I, I really like that. I think you'll like this, Dara. I'm not much of a cook, so I'm like, well, what am I going to eat? I would go to the – I had two shopping towns. i go to either one, and I'd buy a pack of 10 uh, tortillas. Then I'd pick out three vegetables, and then I picked out three different sauces, so like hummus, guacamole, and then a third one. That was one of my meals, a regular, fairly regular meal. A vet, I called it the vegetable burrito, and I would change it every week. So that's one of the ways I was eating. It, does that sound good to you? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It depends on how you mix it together, I think. <laughs> so wait, so you, it sounded like you have a pretty decent market where your site was then, because you're saying you can make guacamole, salsa, you had all these different options. So were you in a relatively larger town where you had like a market, like a really stocked market? I lived in a, a small village, but acro- literally across the road was Northern Cape. So I lived in the Northwest province, and then Northern Cape was nearby. So in ta- uh, the shopping town in my province was called Taung. And Taung, it turns out, I didn't know it at the time, but I spent two years there, so I did some research, is famous. Taung was the home of the Taung child that was the, uh, back in the day, that was considered the oldest uh, human remains in the world. It was two million years old. So this professor, Raymond Dart, in 1924, found these remains. So now those remains are in a museum in Johannesburg. Anyway, this shopping town was about a half hour from the school, and many of the teachers would commute back and forth from town to my school in Mapuatsile. So sometimes they'd get a ride or they'd have to take uh, the South African version of a taxi. The other shopping town was called Hartspotter. That was about an hour away. Yeah, it was nice to have a choice. So you mentioned you are not a good cook. So I gather you didn't learn to make any South African recipes per se. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I don't know how it was in Madagascar, but we would meet two or three days every month or two, you know, in different provinces. The Peace Corps would have some, you know, like IST and different things. And I'd ask, I'd like, hey, has anybody got a recipe? But I'm thinking to myself, if they gave me a recipe, could I make it, you know, because <laughs> I'm not a cook. So, <laughs> you know, did you have to buy your own um, data as far as for your phones and yes. stuff? That made me sometimes on weekends eat out more than normal because, well, I wanted I wanted to use the Wi-Fi. Matter of fact, at one place, I was there so often, I had another name, Mr. Wi-Fi. Oh, Mr. Wi-Fi is here again. Because they knew I was just ordering a Coke or just <laughs> some kind of small meal so I could get the Wi-Fi, you know. So I had actually had two names during my service, so Taboho and Mr. Wi-Fi. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I do have to confess, before going to my service, I was not a great cook. I never liked the kitchen, so I thought I was going to start to do during service. However, Peace Corps... Those give you, like in Madagascar, they give us this book, and it's called Mampelicious, which basically translates to Make It Delicious. Um, and it was full of really great recipes. It was put together by previous volunteers, I believe. So it was a combination of, like, 
you know, uh, recipes from the States combined to, with ingredients that you could easily find in Madagascar. And without that book, I think I, I wouldn't have survived. I did learn how to make a lot of Malagasy dishes, uh, but that book was a lifesaver, at least in my case. So I don't know if you guys didn't get that book, but in my service, you know, like I use it pretty much every day. I think, you know, women's intuition. One of the teachers, Miss Mahadi, she knew I wasn't much of a cook. No kidding. Once a week, she would send her son, her fourth grade son, and I hear a knock on my door, and then there was a dish of something. And I, you know, wasn't that nice, you know? <laughs> I couldn't believe it. They're like, oh, we made you something, you know? I'm like, oh, okay. I guess <laughs> that's great. <laughs> yeah, that's what would happen. So I was really appreciative. Um, I wanted to uh, talk for a minute about one of my students, if I could, uh, learners. Did you use the term learner? No, we just called them students, but we didn't really work with students because we were health volunteers. So we worked with like mothers or something else. We, we called the, the students learners. You know, in every classroom, there's a shining star. One girl, her name was Osiami, and she was in my fifth grade class. I taught English and life skills, so she was in my classes. But not only was she good in academics, she was uh, uh, athletically inclined. So she turned out to be a track star, and she came in third in the province in the 100-meter dash uh, for girls 11 and under. And so I was following her progress. Now, near the end of our, our service, we were evacuated, and I can go into that for a minute. So I felt bad. I was hoping to find her some sort of grant or scholarship, and I was working on that. And then our, our service was uh, – I had to move to Pretoria, in my case in particular, for the last three months. There was some domestic unrest in, in my village. So, But, you know, it's always nice when there's a shining star like that. And I have – people trying to find out for me what she's doing today, you know. Okay. So going on, cause you're saying you're a freelance writer right now. So did Peace Corps help you in that way at any point? Like how did Peace Corps kind of help you professionally? I thought, how can I get everybody at the school involved? You know, I, I love to write. So I started a Mapochile primary school newsletter, probably same Madagascar, you know, the, you never know where the Wi-Fi is or you've got data and this and that. So I'm thinking, well, if I do this, how long can I do this? Um, where am I going to print it out? What computer am I going to be able to use regularly? We had these modems we had to put into our computer. We had to buy data. So what I did, I first had a two-page newsletter. I kept that, and I just kept adding to it. Then it became four pages. Then it became 10. So by the time I left, there were 38 pages. So because I thought, first of all, there isn't a, a big audience that's seeing the newsletter to begin with. So, and then it was sort of doubled as a lesson as you could put it on the wall. You know, I put the individual, I tack up the individual pages. Kids were participating, some of the, uh, some of the teachers, some of the community. So it, we had uh, international pen pals. Are you familiar with that? The Peace Corps third goal? There was a, a, a school from Omaha, Nebraska. They were writing us and our kids were writing them. Uh, included that in the newsletter. Was this newsletter in English or was it in your local language? It was all English, except I had uh, Miss Monhali. I had her kids have a uh, essay contest in Setswana. And well, my Setswana is not good. So whichever one won, I told her we'll put it in the newsletter. So that's what we did. 
And then our last question for this interview is mainly for future Peace Corps volunteers. So we know that right now everything's kind of on a standstill and we don't know when it'll get back up and running. But when that does happen, do you have any advice for any people who are interested in doing Peace Corps? When I was growing up, there was a commercial they called the Peace Corps the toughest job you ever love. It can be a long process to apply for the Peace Corps, but it's something uh, definitely worthwhile. Uh, it's uh, something you'll remember your whole life. So there's never been um, a time like this, a pause, a Peace Corps pause. So it's an exciting time. Um, I've participated in a number of the webinars for the global reentry. The new volunteers, I think, have something to be very excited about. Yeah, thank you. Well, thank you so much for being one of our interviewees. It was like fun chatting with you about your students and just hearing the little stories that you had to share. I'm very thankful I never had to deal with scorpions. So kudos to you <laughs> becoming the killer of them in your community, it sounded like. <laughs> so I just want to thank you again for agreeing to be our interviewee. Well, thanks, Alina. Thanks, Carol. I appreciate it. Thank you, Jeffrey. Yeah, it was really fun getting to know what service is like in South Africa, at least in your community. It was really interesting listening to your tell. Thank you so much for being part of our project. Well, thank you very much. I'm, I'm glad uh, we were able to meet today, and I, I, I look forward to uh, hear, uh, you other people on the podcast. Great. Thank you. Yeah. So for our listeners, if, if you want to see the pictures about a little bit of show notes about Jeffrey's uh, service, we'll have it on our website. It's at peacecorttalespodcast.weebly.com. Uh, that's peacecorttalespodcast.weebly.com. So thank you. And as Jeffrey said earlier, Peace Corps is the toughest job you'll ever love. So thank you so much for listening. Veluma, everyone. Bye-bye. Veluma, Abby. Bye. Thank you. <laughs>